Now, as we said throughout the day yesterday, the doctrine of sanctification concerns all of us uh, because it's where every Christian lives. Everyone who is a member of the new covenant by faith in Jesus Christ for righteousness is currently in the process of transformation. And, And that is because the gospel that justifies sanctifies. The Christ who is glorious to save us from sin's penalty is glorious to save us from sin's power as well. And and beyond that, we love our Savior. We long for Him to get what He is worthy of from us. And we know that He is worthy of a pure bride. We want to put His sanctifying glory on display. We want to show forth the the evidence of His kingly power to conquer and subdue sin in the lives of His people. And because that's true, we need to be crystal clear on how we are to go about growing in holiness, on how God accomplishes this great work of sanctification so that you and I might be more thoroughly equipped to pursue holiness in our own lives and also to be instruments of sanctification in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so to do that this morning, I want to turn to 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, one of the most foundational texts in the New Testament on the doctrine of sanctification. And in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul is contrasting the ministry of the Old Covenant with the ministry of the New Covenant. He's seeking to demonstrate that even though the Old Covenant was glorious, the New Covenant is so glorious that it far outshines the old. In verses 16 to 17, he speaks of several benefits of the new covenant. And then when he finally comes to verse 18, he tells us of a peak new covenant blessing. And he says that the glory of the triune God that we behold shining in the face of Christ progressively transforms us into the image of Christ. In other words, unlike the Old Covenant, which Hebrews 7.19 says made nothing perfect, the New Covenant sanctifies us. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us how. Paul says, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit. And this morning I want to reflect on the implications of that pregnant verse, compare it with the rest of the New Testament's teaching, and in that way help us understand key truths about what holiness is. And the, the goal is that we would have a firm grasp on how to put sanctification into practice, because that's what Jesus is worthy of. And we'll do it in three parts. First, to draw out some key theological principles from sanctification, really building on yesterday. And second, we'll look briefly into what Scripture says about the means of sanctification. And then finally, we'll look into the dynamics of sanctification, about how it is that God goes about supernaturally conforming us to the image of His Son. Principles, means, and dynamics. First, three principles for sanctification, the first of which is that the believer's growth in holiness is fundamentally internal and supernatural. Fundamentally internal and supernatural. You say, where is that in 2 Corinthians 3.18? It's in the word transformed. But we all with unveiled face are being 
transformed into the same image. This is the Greek term metamorpho, where we get the English word metamorphosis. But unlike the English term, which speaks of the outward form, every Greek dictionary will tell you that this word describes a person's inward transformation, an internal change in someone's fundamental character. And Philippians 2.13 makes that point explicitly. God says there that He is working in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Romans 12.2 is another one. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, same word, by the renewing of your mind, more internal language. The point is, sanctification is not merely bringing our outward behavior into conformity to an external standard. Holiness does require holy behavior, but that's not all it requires. Why? Because hypocrites can conform to the external trappings of religion, all the while remaining destitute of holy desires, holy affections. But we are called, Joel 2.13, to rend our hearts and not merely our garments. This inward transformation of the mind or the heart or the character will work itself out in external behavior, to be sure. But that transformation begins internally. And I I quoted a passage from Charles Hodge yesterday, just a brief part. I'll, I'll quote more of it because I think it's so helpful. He says, sanctification does not consist exclusively in a series of a new kind of acts. It's making the tree good in order that the fruit may be good. It involves an essential change of character, just as regeneration is a new birth, a new creation, a quickening or communicating of new life. So sanctification in its essential nature is not holy acts, but such a change in the state of the soul that sinful acts become more infrequent and holy acts more and more habitual and controlling. He says sanctification is making the tree good. It's it's uprooting the old plant and putting it into fertile soil so that it can bear fruit. You don't take fruit and staple it to a tree branch. The fruit has to be produced by the life of the plant, and that life flows only as we, the branches, remain sapped to Christ, our vine. That life comes only through union with Him. Sanctification is not merely new acts which can be counterfeited by hypocrites. It's an internal change in the soul of man. And so, as we said yesterday, the sanctification we must press after is both internal and external. We must have sanctified affections as well as sanctified actions because God has not simply commanded us to carry out a series of external duties. He's also commanded us to have a particular frame of heart as we do those external duties. You can call them internal duties if you like. So, for example, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, that God loves a cheerful giver. And if God loves a cheerful giver and you faithfully put that envelope in the plate every week, but you do it begrudgingly, without cheerfulness, well, have you obeyed? Well, you've obeyed the command to give, but you've not obeyed the command to give cheerfully. And so you see, God commands our affections as well as our actions. He commands us not only to behave righteously, but to be holy, which means we don't merely do what God commands outwardly. We love what God loves 
inwardly. We hate what God hates. We act in keeping with the renewed heart and regeneration that He's given us. If that wasn't so, and sanctification were just a matter of performing external duties, then the right way for us to exhort one another to holiness would be to say, try harder, be better, do gooder. Bear down, grit your teeth, and give it the old college try. And though that's a bit of a caricature, many Christians don't conceive uh, of sanctification much differently than that. And what you have there is the kind of moralistic externalism that depends not upon the Spirit of God working in you, but on the strength of your own willpower, whether your heart is engaged or not. Some people even celebrate that they did their duty even though they hated it. I'm a good Christian because I do what I don't want to do. Now, if holiness was a fundamentally external matter, Nike sanctification would be the way to go. Just do it. Just get it done. But because the dynamic of transformation is a fundamentally internal and supernatural work in the heart of man, our pursuit of holiness looks a lot different. We need to realize that we cannot directly effect that internal supernatural transformation in ourselves. We can't change our own hearts. We need God to do that work in us. And that brings us to a second principle. Sanctification is the sovereign work of the Spirit of God. A sovereign work of the Spirit of God. We saw that yesterday in Philippians 2.13. It is God who is at work within you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And it only makes sense that a fundamentally supernatural internal work can't be done by us. We must be dependent on the one who works in us. And that's why in these key texts on sanctification, you hear the passive voice being used so often. Romans 12, 2, not transform yourselves by renewing your minds, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In our text, 2 Corinthians three eighteen, not beholding, we transform ourselves, but beholding, we are being transformed. By whom? Well, by the God who is at work within us. And so one theologian says that sanctification consists fundamentally in a divine operation in the soul. When you're growing in holiness, God Himself is working directly upon your soul to make you more like His Son. And He does that by His Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.17 says, The Spirit sets His desire against the flesh, and these are in opposition to one another. A few verses after that, we learn that the virtues that compose a life of character and integrity are called the fruit of the Spirit. And if you look at 2 Corinthians 3.18 again toward the end of the verse, Paul tells us that this whole process of transformation is just as from the Lord, the Spirit. There's no mistaking it. The work of sanctification is God's work. But that brings us to the famous question. If the internal and supernatural work of sanctification is the Spirit's work, what does the believer do? Are we just passive and dependent upon the sovereign whims of the Spirit to sanctify us as He pleases? Do we just relax and yield and surrender and let go and let God? No, absolutely not. In fact, it's precisely because of the sovereign work of the Spirit in us that we pursue holiness 
by a diligent effort. Again, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out because God is at work in you. We saw it in 2 Peter 1, 3 to 5. You have everything you need for life and godliness. You've escaped the corruption of the world by lust. For this very reason also, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. God works, and therefore we work. You say, I don't understand that. Sounds like a contradiction. Is it just the divine mystery? No. I don't think we throw up our hands and punt. I don't think we can afford to do that. I don't think Scripture leaves us with no further light on this. You see, while it is unmistakable that the Spirit of God is the sovereign agent of sanctification, that does not contradict the reality that He effects this transformation through the use of means that the believer must appropriate. And that's principle number three. The Holy Spirit employs means in sanctifying the believer. So far from our being passive in the matter, just yielding and surrendering, we're to make every effort to do what? To avail ourselves of the means by which the Spirit does His work. And I've found no better illustration of this than from the Scottish Puritan Henry Scougal. He says, All the art and industry of man cannot form the smallest herb or make a stalk of corn to grow in the field. It is the energy of nature and the influences of heaven which produce this effect. It is God who causeth the grass to grow and the herb for the service of man. And yet nobody will say that the labors of the farmer are useless or unnecessary. You see, human beings can't make grass grow. We can't go outside, concentrate really hard, wave our hands, and make the land sprout fruits and vegetables. That's God's work. And yet nobody would suggest that a responsible farmer should just sit back and wait for his land to magically yield crops as a result of divine fiat. No, God has ordained to bring forth the produce of the earth by means of the farmer's labors by the cultivation of the soil, by the sowing of the seed, by the watering of the plant. If the farmer doesn't do that, nothing happens. In the same way, we can't change our own hearts. We we can't make ourselves more whole. We can't just concentrate really hard, wave our hands, and turn ourselves into more Christ-like men and women. Sanctification is a sovereign work of the Spirit of God. But God has ordained that the Spirit accomplish that work through means. And so when Scripture uses a passive imperative, which is kind of a funny thing if you think about it, commanding us to have something done to us, like be transformed, it's commanding us to put ourselves in the way of those channels of grace which the Spirit of God uses to conform us to the image of Christ. And so what are those means? That brings us to part two. Five means that the believer can appropriate and by doing so put ourselves in the way of the Spirit's work. And I'm only just going to briefly survey these, partly because you know them, partly because we're going to cycle back through them toward the end. But first, we put ourselves in the way of the Spirit's sanctifying work when we read and meditate on Scripture. 1 Peter 2.2 Long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it, by the Word, you may grow in respect to salvation. The people of God are sanctified by the Word of God. Second, prayer. 
The Father has ordained that His children receive the good gifts of His grace by the means of our asking for them. And so Hebrews 4.15, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that you might receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Prayer is the means of finding grace when we need God's help. Third, fellowship. Hebrews 3.12 tells us that One way we guard against being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin is by regularly encouraging one another day after day in the context of the fellowship of the local church in interaction with other believers. We said it yesterday, if we are to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together but to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, that means that if I'm after love and good deeds in sanctification, one way I'm going to get that is to be stimulated to it by the fellowship of Christ church. Fourth, providence. Romans 8:28 tells us that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and that means he ordains absolutely everything to work for our good and he defines that good in the very next verse when he says for those whom he foreknew he predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. Every experience we have is a minister of God's providence that is designed to make us more like Christ. Everything that happens to us. And so, interpreting the events of providence biblically is a means of growing into Christ-likeness. Lord, You say this is for my, my good, my conformity to the image of Your Son. How is it that this thing has been designed by you to make me more like him. And then fifth, Scripture teaches that obedience itself is a means of further progress and holiness. In John 15, 10, Jesus says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. A branch abides in the vine and produces fruit. We will be fruitful insofar as we stay connected to our vine, as we abide in Him. And one way we abide in Him is to keep His commandments. You say, wait a second, doesn't John 14, 15 say commandment keeping is the result of love for Christ? Well, it does. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. But here we learn that walking in the way of Christ's commandments produces even more love for Him. And so it's this glorious cycle of grace. Love produces obedience. Obedience makes us abide in Him, and so we love Him more. And now more love produces more obedience. If we could stay on that cycle, we'd be in good shape. Scripture, prayer, fellowship, providence, and obedience. Sanctifying grace flows through all of these channels and more that we don't have time to consider But the key thought here is that we can't perform this divine operation on our souls to make us more holy, but we can pursue holiness. We must pursue holiness by availing ourselves of these means which the Spirit performs His operation. And then part three, let's focus now on how those means actually work, the dynamics of sanctification. Why is it that the Word of God, prayer, and fellowship, and so on, sanctify us? And the answer to that question comes by considering 
another means of sanctification, but not just another, really the foundational means that stands underneath them all and and renders them all efficacious. This means makes the rest of the means work. And we find it in our text, 2 Corinthians 3.18 again, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. It's a very complex sentence, but if you boil it down to its basic parts, you get beholding we are being transformed. As believers, behold the glory of Jesus by faith with the eyes of our heart. We are thereby progressively conformed into His image. Or as the writer of Hebrews uh, tells us in Hebrews 12, 12, we run the race of the Christian life by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Like Moses in Hebrews eleven twenty six and 27, we are strengthened to endure all manner of temptation by believing God's promises, which the author describes there as looking to the reward and seeing Him who is unseen. That's the language of spiritual sight. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 18, that momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look with the eyes of faith, not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. And then in 1 John 3, 2, We learn that even unto glorification, our degree of Christ-likeness is directly proportional to beholding His glory. John says, we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. So the means by which we are transformed into Christ-likeness is beholding the glory of the Lord. One writer says, beholding is becoming. We become what we behold. Now, why is this so? How does the spiritual sight of Christ supernaturally cause us to increase in holiness? And this is key. If you've you've been somewhere else, come back. It's because the spiritual sight of Christ, by virtue of the delightfulness and the beauty of His glory, causes us to delight in Him, to Look at Him and admire what we see, to be satisfied by Him, so that we don't seek satisfaction in sinful pleasures, lesser pleasures. The glory of Christ captivates our affections and it it molds our, our hearts into conformity with the divine will. As I said, it causes us to love what He loves and to hate what He hates. And then these renewed desires, these renewed affections and loves, that those inform and direct our will. We want to do what we love. We want to get away from what we hate. And then, when our wills are properly informed by sanctified affections, you know what we do? What we want. We do what we want. We joyfully obey the commands of God, which 1 John 5, 3 says, are not burdensome. So the mind perceives truth. The heart is changed by that truth so that it loves it. The will wants what the heart loves and the hands do what the will wants. Mind, affections, will, actions. All of them and in that order. And that apprehension of Christ, that spiritual sight of His beauty, 
is transforming. It changes the soul into the very glory that the soul perceives and is satisfied by. John Owen captures this beautifully. He writes, Let us live in the constant contemplation of the glory of Christ. Then virtue will proceed from Him to repair all our decays, to renew a right spirit within us, and to cause us to abound in all duties of obedience. It will fix the soul unto that object which is suited to give it delight, complacency, and satisfaction. When the mind is filled with thoughts of Christ and His glory, when the soul thereon cleaves unto Him with intense affections, they will cast out or not give admittance unto those causes of spiritual weakness and indisposition. And nothing will so much excite and encourage our souls hereunto as a constant view of Christ and His glory. And the implications of that for our practical pursuit of holiness are staggering. This teaches us that in all our diligent efforts to appropriate the means of grace by which the Spirit does His work, the glory of the Lord Jesus stands at the very center and gives life to all of them. So in our Bible reading, in our prayer, in our times of fellowship with other believers, in all of our experiences of divine providence, and in our striving to keep the Lord's commandments, our aim is to saturate the eyes of our heart with the all-satisfying vision of the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. So let's go through those five means one more time and see how beholding the glory of Jesus undergirds each of them. One, why does Jesus pray that the Father would sanctify His people by the truth? Well, it's because the Word of God reveals the glory of God undergirding and and vivifying the sanctifying power of the written Word is the sanctifying glory of the living Word. You say, where does Scripture teach us that? Well, think back to Exodus 33 where Moses cries out for God to show me your glory. I want to see you. I want to know you. God responds a few verses later, Exodus 34, 5 to 7, not merely by passing by in the glory cloud, but, the text says, by passing by and proclaiming the essence of His character, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. God doesn't just show Moses His manifest glory. He preaches His character to Moses. Or in 1 Samuel 3, The Lord calls Samuel into prophetic ministry, and in verse 21 it says, Yahweh appeared again at Shiloh because Yahweh revealed Himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the Word of Yahweh. Yahweh appeared by the Word. God's Word is a vehicle for revealing His glory, and Scripture sanctifies because it supernaturally reveals this glory of God by which we are transformed when we behold it. I hope that you could see how that transforms your daily devotions. It means you don't go to the Word every morning just to check off boxes on the reading plan. You're not reading just to gather information or or learn new theology or learn new apologetic arguments. It means you're going to the Word every day to see Jesus, to get to know Him, to, to fall in love with the beauty that's revealed there so that the shackles of the allurements of sin break 
It means that every time your Bible is open, you're praying with Moses, show me your glory. Open my eyes that I might behold not just wonderful things from your word, but a wonderful Savior from your word. You're like Jacob wrestling with the Lord. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me with the light of your countenance. My heart is cold, Lord. My will is backward, but I am here until you show up and satisfy me in the morning with your loving kindness. You're asking the Father to give you the eyes to see Christ as He is, a heart to treasure Him, to worship Him and obey Him for what you see in the pages of Scripture. The same is true for prayer. Rather than just praying to ease your conscience or when you need something, you need to see prayer as the occasion for personal worship. We have corporate worship here this morning. You have personal worship each morning at your desk or at your kitchen table. In Scripture, prayerful communion is often represented by the metaphor of seeking the face of God. Psalm 27, 8 says, When you said, Seek my face, my heart, my heart said to you, Your face, O Yahweh, I shall seek. What does it mean to seek the face of a God who doesn't have a body? Well, it means to seek communion with Him. FaceTime with Him. It means to seek a relationship with Him. Psalm 27, 4 calls prayer the beholding and meditating upon the beauty of the Lord. Prayer is beholding God's beauty. It's time to meditate on the glories of His perfections revealed in the Word and experienced in providence. It's time to praise Him for His goodness and bounty, to taste the goodness of His infinite sufficiency as you present your request before Him. You say, Lord, I need help. I don't know how to handle this day at work. I can't handle this issue with the kids. I don't know where to go from here. But I delight to lay these requests upon the shoulders of a mighty Savior, to cast the cares of my heart upon the Lord, as He directs me to do, who cares for me. John Owen wrote, The things to be aimed at in prayer, this is what you're after here, are the spiritual intense fixation of the mind by contemplation on God in Christ, until the soul be, as it were, swallowed up in admiration and delight, and being brought to an utter loss through the infiniteness of those excellencies which it does admire and adore. Does that sound like your prayer life? Mine could use some work. I want to meditate on the beauties of the character of God until I'm swallowed up in admiration and delight. Because you know what I'll be doing then? Seeing His glory and being transformed. Number three, beholding the glory of Christ is also the foundation of our sanctifying fellowship with other believers. We, we tend to think of fellowship as the time after the teaching where you get to have you know, coffee and donuts. But true fellowship is so much deeper than that. Because every believer is progressively being conformed into the image of Christ, Romans 8.29 again, fellowship with other believers sanctifies us because of what we can see of Christ in one another. To whatever degree you have been conformed to Christ's image, to that degree you show Him. The lifeblood of biblical fellowship is the glory of Christ that is to be enjoyed in one another. That's 
what I'm concerned to see in you. I, I do want to hear about your vacation. I do want to know how the kids are, go- are doing. I want to know how work is going, of course, because I care about you. But most, I want to see in you, in our times of fellowship, more of, of Christ. I want to see my Savior in His people so that I can catch a glimpse of this glory that sanctifies me. The believers I enjoy spending time with the most are the ones that show me the most of Jesus. And I think that we all ought to aspire to be that kind of friend to our brothers and sisters. It should transform the way you think about interactions with your your brothers and sisters here at, at Countryside. Rather than just shooting the breeze about superficialities. The focus of time spent with one another in fellowship must be on seeing Jesus in one another and reflecting Jesus to one another. What what promise are you trusting? What what majesty, what what attribute are you reveling in? What what book are you reading? Things like that. Tell me of my Savior. Let me observe my Savior in the kindness of His people. Then fourth, providence also stands on that sanctifying foundation of the glory of the Lord. We, we need to recognize that every aspect of our experiences in life are gracious dispensations of God's providence. And so if they're gifts of providence, we ought to trace the glory of the gift back up to the giver who richly supplies us with all good things to enjoy. When we, when we do that, when we take God's gifts and follow them to the giver, we can be transformed by His glory. And that, friends, is especially the case in trials. Philippians 3.10 says, I want to know Him and the fellowship of His sufferings. You say, Paul, why not the fellowship of His victories? Well, because in the fellowship of His sufferings, you know more than the man of sorrows than when things are easy. More, more, you know more of the man of sorrows than when things are easy because Jesus knows what it's like to suffer for righteousness' sake. And He is sure to minister comfort to those who suffer for the sake of His name. He meets you in the hospital room different than on the mountaintop. And when we experience His compassion and comfort in times of trial, comfort from one we know who has suffered also in the flesh, well, we behold His glory and we're transformed. And then, finally, the glory of Christ also undergirds and motivates our acts of obedience. So turn with me to John chapter 14 and verse 21. We'll, we'll end in this text. But in John 14, 21, Jesus says something we've heard before. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, Right? The lover of me will obey. And then he says this. I think sometimes we don't read the second part of the verse because the first part seems so familiar. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. So keeping Christ's commandments results in further disclosure of the Savior to the eyes of our hearts. Friends, this is the great motivator for all our efforts of obedience. That when I forsake sin and follow Christ, I get to see and enjoy more of Him. I said this in the Q&A yesterday, but do you know why you sin? It's not because you have to. 
It's not because somebody comes to you and puts a gun to your head and says, I know you have holy desires, but if you don't sin, I'm going to kill you. (coughs) Excuse me. Nobody sins out of duty. All of us sin because in the moment we believe that sinning will bring us something that is satisfying. We believe that it will be more enjoyable, more pleasant, more rewarding on the path of disobedience than on the path of obedience. From the lecherous look on the internet to the adulterous affair to the sharp word and impatient reply to the laziness that seems to promise greater comfort than diligence does, every sin promises satisfaction. That's why we go after it. We think obedience means nothing but self-denial and disobedience means self-fulfillment. But that is a lie. What does John 14, 21 tell us? Obedience to Christ results in further disclosure, further manifestation of Jesus to the eyes of our hearts, deeper fellowship with Him, greater communion with Him, a greater apprehension of the glory of His attributes, a sweeter taste of the satisfaction of His beauty. And brothers and sisters, no sin is more satisfying than that. No sin even approaches the oceans of pleasure that are wrapped up in communion with Christ. And if I can discipline my mind and my heart to remember that, to believe that in the hour of temptation, I know there is more of Him to be enjoyed on the path of obedience than on the path of obedience. Guess which path I'll pick? I'll pick the path of obedience. And so... I call you to fight sin like that. When you're tempted to sin and you don't feel like obeying, reason with yourself. Preach the truth to yourself that all sinning will get you is a fleeting, false pleasure that destroys rather than satisfies. And yet obedience will bring you a clearer and fuller vision of the glory of your Savior whom you love who is the greatest joy, the greatest pleasure, the greatest satisfaction your heart can experience. And then listen, out of a desire for a superior pleasure, out of a desire to see and know and enjoy more of Christ, whom you regard as more satisfying than anything, reject the false pleasures of sin in exchange for the supreme pleasure that is found in Jesus alone. See, Stop wanting to be happy. No. Be happy in the right things. Seek satisfaction in what will actually satisfy you, what you've been designed and created to be satisfied by. And when you do that, believing that there is more of Him to enjoy on the path of obedience than all the pleasures this world can offer, you will not find God's commandments burdensome. You will not view obedience as the begrudging performance of mere duty. You will not need to be told to bend your will to do your duty no matter how you feel about it. You know, just obey and the feelings will follow. No, when you realize that obedience brings the bountiful harvest of more intimate fellowship with the glorious Christ, you will not only put off, you will gladly put off sowing to the flesh. And you will sow to the Spirit and from the Spirit reap life everlasting. When you treasure the glory of Christ as more surpassingly valuable and more supremely pleasant 
than the false pleasures of sin. It's then that your obedience truly magnifies the supreme worth of Jesus. Why? Because then it's rendered not as the burdensome duty of embittered slaves. Look at what this man makes me give up. No, but as the delightful duty of worshipers. Look at what I am glad to give up because I gain him. That's somebody whose heart has been won by beauty. And that's what 2 Corinthians 3.18 does for us. It transforms the way we see transformation. Sanctification is a fight. It is a race. It is a battle. But because the foundational means of sanctification is beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ, you recognize that that fight is the fight of faith. It's the 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 battle that's fought on the level of spiritual sight. The race is run, fixing our eyes on Jesus. So, friends, it is God's work to sanctify His people. It's our work to look to Jesus and be transformed. May we put the sanctifying glory of Christ on display to the church and to the world by beholding that glory through these means and being transformed into his image from the inside out. Let's pray. Father God, we ask you to seal your own word by the working of your spirit in our hearts far better than any preacher could do. We pray that you would do this great work of the divine operation to make us more like Jesus through your word, through prayer, through fellowship and providence and obedience. And I pray that you would just, you would give your people a heart to love your son unto the praise and honor of your name, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.